what a day this is. All around the world, places very different from ours, Christians are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Not an idea, not a mere concept or some myth that provides meaning for life, but a real event in history. The historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is risen. That is the message of Christian people wherever they may be found. And it is always comforting and reassuring when we go to a new place or move to a new place. And we've even seen people move away from here, from our church, and we've tried to help them find churches elsewhere. And, you know, although when they leave, it's quite sad, and there's, there are all of those relationships, uh, what inevitably happens is they find a new local church where the same hope in Christ is present in the hearts of God's very same people, and there is a family. We experience that here at Four Corners Church. We are grateful again today to gather. This is, in many ways, just another Sunday. It is the Lord's Day. Every Sunday we gather. So I hope I will see all of you uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after that and after that because every Sunday we worship this risen Savior. But we are glad that you are here this morning. In the Old Testament, the Jews were instructed to celebrate Passover. And when their children would ask about its meaning, they were to explain to them what God had done in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And this was a a key component of that festival of Passover, that the faith, the the confidence in the God of Israel who had delivered his people would be passed on and conveyed as children are asking questions about what in the world their parents are doing. And the parents would explain it and the children would be taught. Today, we tell our children about Passover fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? Those parents told their children about a picture. It was a real event. It was a salvific event, a great event in its magnitude, but it was merely a picture of the salvation that we have through Christ. Today, we tell our children of Passover fulfilled. What God has done in Christ by placing our sins on him and then raising him from the dead on the third day. Last Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, was pretty strange. We all remember that. We were all on lockdown because of COVID, filming various parts of the service from home, and it was, it was really nice to see all of those beautiful pink or purple flowers uh, behind Walt as he read the scripture. Just a reminder of the new life that Easter really, uh, that spring really is a picture of the new creation and new life that we have through Christ. But it was 
despite the beautiful flowers, nonetheless very strange to be filming from our homes. So we are very grateful. We rejoice this morning that this year we can gather together. And I am personally glad that this year I am not preaching from my bedroom, sitting in a chair, hoping that the camera doesn't shut off and I have to start over. So that is not the case today. We praise God for that. We are here together in the flesh, praising our God for what he has done in Passover fulfilled. So what is our text for this morning? That is a a key question for our church. Uh, That is what we do here. We preach and revolve around the texts of Scripture. Uh, We go through sequentially books of the Bible or large chunks within books. And so that is always at the center of our life together as a church. What text? And what text are we in this morning? Do we stick with our series in Romans? Or do we go to another place? Well, Trey's already let the cat out of the bag for us, which is good. I mean, you already knew that. I said that last week. It is very hard to justify departing from Romans when it comes to Easter. And the reason for that is because Romans is the most extensive presentation of the gospel that we have in the Bible. And Easter is the gospel. The events of Easter, we learn from 1 Corinthians 15, is the gospel. The gospel is the great theme of Paul's letter to the Romans. So it is hard to justify moving away from this book. And in the same way, it happened last year with Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Today, we providentially find ourselves in a very appropriate passage for Easter. So not only are we in Romans, which itself is filled with the gospel throughout, but we come to a very pertinent passage for Easter as we come to chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. So if you would go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Listen to how one commentator Douglas Moo introduces his comments on Romans 8. The inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains, such are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what so many consider to be the greatest book in Scripture. How do you leave that for this wonderful celebration of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? So that's where we will be this morning, continuing our series in Romans, entering into uh, this great mountain peak passage. The title for the sermon this morning is An Easter explanation, an Easter explanation, and it's actually an Easter explanation, and the reason that it is titled that is because there are many places in Scripture where the events of Easter, Christ's death and resurrection, are explained for us. What happened, why it happened, and how that matters 
for us. And as I said before, one of the most explicit places where Easter is explained is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we looked at that passage uh, two years ago, the first set of verses. We were in Madras Middle School at the time, and we looked at, for Easter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is also an explanation of Easter. But Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, gives us another explanation of the events of Easter weekend. And what God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ is put before us here in this text. And this Easter explanation, I'm going to go ahead and give you the the three points before we pray so you can write those down. This Easter explanation has three basic parts that we're going to look at today. And here they are, very simple. Who we are, what he did, and how we live. That is what we find as we come to chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, with verse 3, of course, being central, right there in the center, it's the heart of this passage. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, an Easter explanation, who we are, what he did, and how we live. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're at the beginning of the chapter, so we'll, we have less verses to read. When we get to the end of Romans 8, we'll have quite a bit to read. But we'll just read these first four verses this morning. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable on Easter Sunday, tomorrow, and every day of our lives. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You can go ahead and be seated. By the way, when we read these words according to the Spirit, we think, we should think, uh, the, the new age, we should think the new creation. It is the Spirit who makes that possible, who oversees that. And that began with the first fruits of the resurrection, which was Christ. And we too now live in this new age, this this new age inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ from the dead, living in the Spirit. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing as we look at this Easter explanation. Father, we are humbled by the opportunity to be gathered again and to sit under your word. Lord, to think that in your sovereign grace, we would be here this morning listening to these precious words. God, apart from anything else you have done in our lives, what a grace that we would have these words entering our ears ever 
So God, we are so grateful that you are proclaiming to us through the Apostle Paul this morning the greatest message, the greatest news that the universe has ever seen. Father, we pray that this good news of Christ, Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ exalted, Christ one day to return, that this good news of Jesus Christ would go forth this morning in our ears and Lord, by your grace, we pray that it would go into our very hearts. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, who are born again, who are believers, who have been united to Christ, who have died with Christ and been raised to newness of life, those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Father, would you encourage us this morning and lift up our hearts from the world and the flesh and the troubles of this life that we would, as Joel Beakey says of the Puritans in general, have one foot in heaven as we consider our life here on earth and as we consider it through the lens of the resurrection and death of Christ. Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray that it will be edifying both as we worship you corporately and afterwards as we have conversations. And Lord, that the, the truth of your word would just spill over into the conversations of this day. Conversations among families, conversations between families, conversations among the people here today. And conversations with people we will meet later at the gas station or the coffee shop or the restaurant or in our neighborhoods, Lord, that we would declare Christ is risen. And as the risen Christ, he is the only hope in life and death. Father, I pray that that would be clear to all of us, that you would build up your people and save those who are not. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to our first point this morning, who we are are who we are a great truth of easter easter is about a lot of things it's multifaceted Uh, trey and i were talking a couple of weeks ago as we were approaching good friday and we were both just discussing how uh, both good friday and easter sunday uh, it's so difficult when you think about uh, preaching or uh, talking about these things because they are so multifaceted The glory of Good Friday and the glory of Resurrection Sunday sparkles in this diamond-like way. You can't fully exhaust it or capture it in a great volume or set of volumes and certainly not in an hour of a sermon. But one of the facets of Easter, one of the great truths of Easter is who we are. And that's what we come to first in chapter 8. So look with me at verses 1 to 2. This great first line here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's just stop there for a moment. The first thing 
we have to ask is what this word therefore is referring to. That's the, right at the beginning, therefore. In fact, it's even, it's kind of funny. I don't know if you've quoted this verse before and you say it kind of messes up the, the quotation a little bit. You know, you want to just say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a punchy maxim. He's got to put this word therefore in there. It just kind of messes it up as far as a plucked out of context Bible verse goes. But it's here. And so we need to ask why it is there. Paul is drawing a conclusion. That's what the word therefore tells us. It's drawing a conclusion from something that has been written before. But what is it? What's he drawing a conclusion from? Maybe it goes back to chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is going to describe, as we'll see in verse 4 and following, Paul is going to describe life in the Spirit in chapter 8. So maybe he is picking up where he left off in chapter 7, verse 6. He's coming back. All the material after that was meant to kind of explain what he had said before, and now he's coming back to verse 6 of chapter 7, therefore, and moving forward. Or maybe Paul is simply moving from the very last verse he covered, the most simple explanation, chapter 7, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In describing his struggle with sin, he rejoices in Christ, looking forward to his second coming, and lives now, as we saw last week, from the inner being remade by the Spirit. Maybe that is what he is referring back to as he now goes into chapter 8 with all of these references to the Spirit. Or, finally, maybe Paul is drawing a big conclusion from everything he said so far. That this is really a breathe, look back over all of chapters 1 to 7, of course, with the, the most immediate context bearing in the heaviest, but all of chapters 1 to 7 there in Paul's mind with this mighty, powerful, therefore. Justification by faith in Christ, new life in Christ, therefore, and Paul marches on. Well, it's interesting, you know, that commentators will spend lots of pages debating on which one of these in particular is the one. That's one of the things I often find uh, just preaching and reading various commentaries from various books is, is you find that, that commentators will often fall into the pit of needing one and only one to apply. It always seems to be an either or but wherever we land on that question, and I think it is probably a combination of these, the point made in these opening verses is abundantly clear. Paul is telling us who we are as Christians, as those who have embraced the gospel. Because of the events of Easter, which we'll see in verse 3, we are forgiven and free 
people. So we're gonna take a minute now and look at each of those. That's basically what Paul says in verses one to two. Who are we? We are forgiven and free people. That means if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are forgiven and free. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are not forgiven and enslaved. So let's look at each of these. First, forgiven. Verse one says, there is now no condemnation for us. What does that mean? Well, in chapter five, verses 16 and 18, condemnation is set up as the opposite of justification. And so in chapter five, Paul will explain how in Adam comes condemnation. And then he contrasts that with how in Christ comes justification. So by condemnation, we are meant to understand the opposite of justification. We have been justified or declared right in the eyes of God. The only eyes that matter. How often do we live for the eyes of other people? Oh, we care so much what other people think, what our children think, what our family members think, what the people here at this church think. The only thing that matters in the end is what God thinks, what God sees when he looks at your life. And it is a matter of either condemnation or justification. And we are those who no longer have condemnation. We have been declared right with God. We have been forgiven. God has removed our sin guilt. We were once under God's wrath. We've we've talked a lot about wrath. This is repulsive to our culture. In fact, if you want to kind of look out on the horizon at, at churches and Christian authors and so forth, you're trying to figure out where do, where do I kind of land as I, as I follow certain people online or read certain books. Those who understand the core of the Christian message in terms of God's wrath being satisfied, that is true Christianity. That is what Christ came to do. To deny the wrath of God is to elevate self. It is to think more of ourselves than we ought. We are apart from Christ under the wrath of God because we are sinners. We are not holy. We are not good. We are under God's just condemnation. Not because God is just an angry, impulsive kind of being. No, but because God is just. And just as our hearts cry out for justice, when we see injustice in the world, God's glory demands justice. And God judges rebel sinners. We were once under that as Christians. We were once under God's wrath. Paul was once under God's wrath. Under sin and death. Under the curse of the law, listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, now listen to this. You think you're a good person? You think you're going to be okay when you stand before God? Listen to this. Cursed, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all 
all things written in the book of the law and do them. The truth is you could go to heaven by the law if you did that, if you abided by all of it in every way. Oh, we pat ourselves on the back when we help someone in need. We pat ourselves on the back when we see some sort of injustice and we try to meet that. And apart from Christ, people think that that is somehow going to get you in. It's not. All things written in the book of the law must be obeyed, must be abided by, must be kept perfectly without any deviation, and we must do them perfectly. And under those conditions, we would be blessed forever. But without that, we are cursed, it says. But now, in Christ Jesus, that is joined to the risen Christ Jesus, we are right with God. We are at peace with God. We know God. Instead of judgment, we have relationship. Do you recognize that this morning if you're here and you're not a Christian? Do you recognize that the biggest problem human beings face is the guilty verdict of God Almighty? You know, all the problems in our lives, all the problems in our society, all of the sins, whether they be personal or manifested systemically or whatever, all the problems and brokenness, all of the moral evil that we see in our world, that we've read about in our world, that we see in our own hearts, all of that Immediate brokenness points to one great reality, and that is guilt before God. That is the greatest problem of human beings. That is the plight. It is not addiction. It is not broken relationships with other people. It is guilt before God. And this means that as Christians, there's nothing more important that we could thank God for than the removal of this guilty verdict. Think about that for a moment. Yes, thank God for your new baby. Oh God, thank you for this child, this gift of life. Yes, thank God for your health. Thank you, Lord, that I'm able to get up today and do what I need to do. Yes, thank God for your new house. Thank God for a new job. But don't we see the evil in our hearts when all of our prayers of thanks are those things? As Christians, we are Romans 8-1 people. We give thanks to God hourly, daily, because there's no more sin guilt. Oh my goodness, there's no more guilt before God for us as Christians. We can understand a little bit about our spiritual depth and spiritual maturity when we ask this question, how often do I give thanks to God for removing his condemnation from me? How often do I live in the place mentally and consciously of rejoicing in the fact that sin guilt is removed? 
we can be very easily filled with worldliness. Christians, yes, but storing up treasure for ourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And appearing very spiritual in giving thanks to God for all of these little tangibles. But what about this? What about this great gift? This is what we celebrate at Easter. Second, we are free. We are forgiven and we are free. Verse two says that the law, the regulating principle of the spirit of life has freed us from the regulating principle of sin and death. We are now not condemned because of what God has done by uniting us to Christ. Instead of being condemned, we are justified and instead of being enslaved to sin and death, we are free through the life-giving spirit. So because of Easter... We are forgiven and free people. Let me say this to you. Easter is a very personal thing. Yes, in many ways it has nothing to do with us, right? It is this great event. Historically, it is objective reality. Whether we exist it or not, it is truth. It happened. It is history. And yet at the same time, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, the events of Easter weekend are very personal in nature. And this is the reason that for Christians, Easter is such a big deal. It's the reason we celebrate it. Not because it just happens to coincide with usually sunny days in spring and it just feels really nice to go to church. And not because... It is this great event that sort of uh, distinguishes people as Christian people, at least in name in some way. Not because it is a holiday on the calendar where we spend time with family and those we know at our church. It is for us life. It is for us very personally life. It is our only hope. It's what fills us with joy and meaning. Easter is very real to us. But how did this come about? Now we come to the events of Easter. So we've seen who we are, what Easter tells us about who we are, but now we come to the events of Easter. And that leads us to our second point, what he did. What he did. Look at verse three. This is the heart of the passage. Verse three. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Here we find the basis for our identity. The events of Easter. We are who we are because of what God did. God did it. God did it. And the emphasis here falls on the Father, but the actions implied are those of the Son. So let's look at each of those persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. What activity do we see here of the Father and of the Son? 
As Christians, we believe in one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is one way we, we explain, this is one of the ways we, this is the way, rather, that we explain love. The Bible says God is love. How in the world can God be love if he existed eternally as the I am, as the Bible makes clear is true? He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is. How in the world can God be love if he existed apart from his creation, even angels, before they were made? What did God love? Who did God love? God is love because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit exist eternally, co-equal, consubstantial, of the same substance, each person, one God together in love. So we see first the activity of the Father. He overcomes, he sins, and he condemns. Those are three things if you want to write those down. We see here about the Father. He overcomes, he sins, S-E-N-D-S, and he condemns. The Father overcomes the inability of the law. So first overcomes. He overcomes the inability of the law. When the sinner meets God's holy law, he doesn't keep it. He breaks it. He rebels against it. Instead of life, God's holy law brings death and a curse to the sinner. No one can keep the law of God. Instead, what does the law do when it comes along? What is God's standard for right action? What does that do when it hits the heart and the mind of the sinner. Chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. It exposes sin. It accentuates sin. It highlights it. And then chapter 7, verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So this is what happens when the law comes along and meets the unsaved person. God's standard for right action, just think of it that way. God's, God's standard for moral goodness, when that comes up against the sinner, boom, knowledge of their own sin and the activation of greater sin in rebellion against God. The law can't save a single person. Your own little code of moral conduct, your own little moral compass, your own little true north, whatever it is, that won't save you. If God's holy law, jot and tittle, revealed, perfectly can't save you, how in the world can your artificially constructed law save you? It can't. It can't. Trying to be a good person will not get you to heaven. If you think this morning that you're going to go to heaven, going to be with God, not going to go to hell because of anything you have done or are doing, you are deceived. You are blinded. The Father overcomes. The law cannot do it, but the Father overcomes. The Father sends his Son. That's how he overcomes. He sends his Son, truly human but not a sinner. And that is why, why Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice Paul's language. Paul is very careful here. He says that Christ came, or the Son was sent, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Well, there's Christmas. There's Christmas. 
That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Why did the Father send the Son? Why is there Christmas? Answer, because of Easter. Christmas exists for the purpose of Easter. And what happened in the events of Easter? What happened years later after God sent his own son? Approximately 30 years after God sent his son to take on the likeness of, sinful, of sinless flesh, the, the likeness of our human flesh. Christ was fully human, and yet he was perfectly sinless. What happened in the events of Easter? It says that God condemned sin in the flesh. In Christ's flesh, sin was dealt with. Christ became a sin offering. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Christ was perfectly sinless, but God put him forward as a sin offering. He put him forward as a propitiation, a wrath satisfier, a wrath absorber. In Christ's flesh, sin was dealt with. The Father condemned his very own Son so that he would not have to condemn you. That's the gospel we teach our kids. We want our kids, yes, to fear God because that's the path to see his grace. We want our children after they become Christians to, to fear God in that holy reverence. But what we need to understand is that in the gospel is declared for us the amazing, extravagant, unfathomable love of God for sinners that God sent his own his own, very own son. It is Genesis 22 on a cosmic scale. Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, putting the wood on his back. That's what God the Father did to God the Son to save us. Christian, that is what God did for you. So that he would not have to condemn us. But, but what about the son? So the father overcomes, he sins and he condemns. But what about the son? As the father overcomes, sins and condemns, we see in that very activity, the son comes, endures and removes. So you can write those down if you would like. The son comes, endures and removes. He came to this earth in human flesh he took on in Adamness. He entered the race of Adam. He was truly human. Read 1 John. There were people in the early church who said that Jesus only appeared uh, from the Greek word docheo, to, to seem or to appear. And they were called docetics. They were those who taught that, uh, that God only appeared in human flesh, that Christ only appeared to take on real flesh. And John says, no, 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 no. He became man. He entered our race and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became an Adamite 
if you will. He entered our race, but entirely without sin. Jesus never sinned in his thoughts, in his affections, in his actions. It is unfathomable. And that, by the way, is the reason I think that John says that the the whole world could not contain all the books that would be written if all the acts of Jesus were to be described. Because as Jesus ate a bite of fish, as Jesus woke up in the morning, as Jesus went to wash off his face with water, whatever, fill in the blank, every moment of Jesus' life was a sermon, a volume of God's glory. How could the world contain all the acts of Christ? Because every second, every millisecond for all of those years, and under the apostles' observation under three years, he was entirely without sin. It makes Judas's sin all the worse because he got a front row seat on all of it. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He relates to us. He sympathizes with us when we're exhausted. He sympathizes with us when we lose loved ones when we are weary and distraught because he knows our frame. He entered our dustiness and he became man. He entered into the world of our mortality. And in the sense of death and the effects of death on human existence, he entered into our fallenness and yet was sinless. He entered the human race and became human for one reason, to bear the penalty for sin owed by humans, by us. And as the perfect sacrifice, he died in the place of human beings. For all who would believe in him, he died for us, for his sheep, for his bride. And in coming and enduring, he removed sin. And that is why Romans 8, verse 1, begins as it does. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he already took it upon himself. You ought not, Christian, to see your sin as just evaporated. Poof. As something that God just erased with an eraser. It's gone. Thank you, God. No. He took your sin and he put it on Christ. It was not erased. It it did not evaporate. It was paid for with the blood of the Lamb. It was paid for by Christ. He really did die for our sins. God really did pour out his judgment and wrath on Jesus while hanging on the cross for every sin, God's people, for every sin we've ever committed. The glory of this Christ, the beauty of this Christ, the loveliness of this Christ. We are justified because he was condemned in our place. We are free and alive because he underwent death. And now in the risen Jesus Christ, our sin has been removed. 
So, we see the Father's work and the Son's work, but what about the Spirit? Well, let's look at our final verse, verse 4. And let me just say, this is a very Trinitarian passage. It's interesting to see here the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's come to our final point as we close this morning, how we live. We've seen who we are. For those who are Christians, who we are. We've seen what he did. And now we see how we live. Look, look at verse four with me as we finish up. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is amazing. This is illuminating. This is eye-opening. Even jaw-dropping. This is what Paul is saying. The very purpose of the events of Easter is the holiness of God's people. Have you ever thought about that? Really thought about that? It, it, just, it just explodes and shatters any form of licentiousness, sort of free and sinful living after becoming a Christian. It, it destroys unholiness. And the thought of entertaining sin in any way, it just destroys, it obliterates it. The very purpose of the events of Easter is the holiness of God's people. This is how important your sanctification is to God. Think about that the next time you undergo the fiery trial of temptation. To give in to that thing that you've been stumbling into, that, that, that temptation, and, and Satan comes to you and he tempts you. Know this, that the purpose for Christ dying and rising for you is that you would say no to sin and yes to God so that you would be holy and sanctified. That is precisely what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 4. The events of Easter weren't just to declare you holy, but to make you holy. It's amazing sometimes to hear people will talk as though it's just all about justification. Christ died and righteousness has been imputed to me and there we go, done. Just waiting to go to heaven. I'm, I'm right with God, I'm just waiting to go to heaven. No, that's not biblical at all. You made that up in your own head. The Bible is clear that God did what he did in Christ to make us holy, truly make us holy. We'll never experience that perfect holiness. And as we saw last week, in the last two weeks, we will struggle with this wretchedness our entire lives. We will struggle with the, the, the sense of our own sinfulness. And in fact, the holier we get, the closer to Christ we get, just as you, when you get closer to the light, you see more of the stains you ever been in your house, you know, in a darker room and you're like, oh, this shirt's good. I'm going to go out the door. And then you get out in the sun. You're like, oh, man, there's a coffee stain and a ketchup stain and a snot stain and all kinds of, not from yourself, from your kid, of course. <laughs> and all of these things on your shirt. And you realize, I didn't see that before. That is exactly what it is like to grow in knowledge of the Lord. The closer we get to God, the more our stains are exposed. So there will never be a day 
when we have this feeling of our own holiness. And if that's come for you, you came here this morning just real satisfied this Easter Sunday. Man, I'm, I'm just really holy these days. That's a big problem. Because that is absolutely not the case. It hasn't been the case for any Christian in the history of the world. And for no Christian alive today. And yet we are being made holy. We've been declared holy in Christ. Perfectly holy in God's sight. Positionally. This is positional sanctification. We've been moved from position, category, sinner, unholy, to position of sanctified, holy. That's done. That's settled. But now the Holy Spirit is growing us in holiness of life, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ all the way until death, when we will part this body, be perfect in our souls before God, and one day be raised in perfection in our bodies. So I'll say it again. The events of Easter were not just to declare you holy, but to really make you holy throughout your life. The Father sent his Son and carried out judgment on sin in the flesh of his Son. The Son willingly came, went to the cross, and bore sin, wrath, and death. Why? I'll read it again. In order that, that's purpose, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's what I've been going on and on about. In other words, so that we might live for God, for His glory, keeping God's law from the heart. Fulfilling the law of God by loving God and neighbor from the inner being, reflecting his holiness, hallowing his name through hallowed lives. We've seen this already. This is similar to verses before this. So let me just read a few. Chapter 6, verse 4, newness of life. That's what we're talking about. Chapter 6, verse 6, no longer enslaved to sin. 6.13, presenting ourselves to God and our members to God as instruments or weapons for righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 4, bearing fruit for God. Chapter 7, verse 25, serving the law of God with my mind. That's what this is. That's why God did what he did in Christ. That's the purpose for Christ's coming. That's the purpose for Christ's death. But now we come, as we finish up, to Easter itself. Easter is, after all, specifically, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Specifically. And we see here the resurrection of Christ. Well, how? Where? Christ's resurrection is not mentioned here. Well, let me ask you this. How is it that we live this new life? How do we live this life that is being described for us in verse 4? The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. The answer is simple. By the Spirit. And who is this Spirit? He is the Spirit of the resurrected Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 33. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. This is Peter. He's preaching at Pentecost, and he talks about Jesus being raised. And this is what he says about him, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ pours out the Spirit. No risen Christ, no Spirit. Where there is the Spirit, there is evidence of the risen Christ. I remember having a professor critique the song, How Do I Know He Lives? He lives in me or lives in my heart. I forget the exact words. And he was just critiquing that. He was saying, look, you know, we, we know that Christ lives because of the truth of God's word and the objective reality of it. And that is all true, absolutely. But I think we, we also from this can say that, yes, the evidence of the power of God in the heart of a person, the evidence of the Holy Spirit regenerating and sanctifying and transforming in our hearts shows that Christ lives. Because there would be no spirit apart from this living Christ. And then Romans 8, 9, Christ is identified with the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Notice that. What does Paul call the spirit? The spirit of Christ. The spirit is a distinct person within the Trinity, and yet he is called both the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated abundantly in the presence of the Spirit in a changed life. So what does this tell us? Makes clear to us that the Christ we worship today, right now, He's here. We cannot see Him, but we love Him. We cannot see Him, but we know Him. And we're going to one day see him with our glorified eyeballs. Right now we see him with the eyes of our hearts. And that's the reason Paul says that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He prays that for us in Ephesians chapter 1. Christ is alive. He is raised and exalted. He sends his spirit into our hearts. He is with us. He is in us. And by his strength, Though imperfectly, we carry out the law of God from the heart as we walk in the Spirit. How we live. How we live. We are those who now, by nature, walk in the Spirit. As Christians, we are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. By the way, let me say this very important. Verse 4 is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. What that means is Paul is not saying, hear this, in verse 4. In verse 4, he's not saying, hey, go walk in the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we Christians are those who walk in the Spirit. That is who we are. It's descriptive of the Christian. And yet we must fight to live out our identity every day. And that's the reason why Paul uses this idea of walking in the Spirit a little differently in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. There he does give a command. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so by nature, categorically, we are those who walk according to the Spirit. But every day, 
Every day we must choose to be those who in fact functionally, practically do walk in the Spirit. This is a life of total dependence. Crying out to the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord. To the Son, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit. He's the only way we're going to do anything in this life. This is also a life of humility. When you recognize your own emptiness and that every bit of strength that you have comes from another, it comes from the Holy Spirit, how in the world can you exalt yourself? Easter humbles us. It humbles us in this way because it reminds us that the life we have is not our own. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is the Holy Spirit in us as the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it. It is a life of dependence and humility. And it is a life of graciousness. You judgmental with other people? Maybe you think it's because you've done something in your own strength. People who are kind of bent towards discipline can become very prideful when they achieve anything. Because we think that, you know, I I disciplined myself. I tried really hard. I did it. There we go. That's That's not life for the Christian. The Christian recognizes that everything we ever do is because of the strength of the Holy Spirit. And that humbles us and it makes us gracious when other people don't do as we have done or as we think they ought to do, we are gracious with them because we recognize that the only reason we've done it, the only reason we've been able to achieve it, X, Y, or Z, whatever it might be, is because of the grace of God, His Holy Spirit working in us. So what is Easter all about? How do we explain it? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 gives us an explanation. Easter tells us about the deliverance of the people of God purchased by the Son of God, empowered daily by the Spirit of God, and all of this for the glory of God. So, go, Christian In the power of the risen Christ, live in his spirit, needy, humble, and gracious. Looking forward to the day when in his second coming, there will no longer be any flesh to fight. Right now, there's flesh to fight. Even right now, this very moment, this afternoon, There will be much flesh to fight, and we must fight on. But one day, the battle will end, Christ will return, and we will live with him in a new heaven and a new earth, perfectly spotless. And here's the thing. There will be no need of the sun. You remember I talked about going in that dark room and not seeing those stains. You come out, well, guess what? It'll be brighter than it's ever been in that day. And guess what? In that maximum brightness, you'll be able to look and see zero stains. 
It could never be brighter and you will never be cleaner. Because Christ's bride will be shining in absolute splendor forever. That is our hope. That is the hope of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we give you glory for these truths from your word. We thank you for instructing us in them today. We ask, God, that our hearts would be more and more assured of who we are in Jesus, Lord. And it is uh, kind of a known fact that more people come to church on Easter than any other time. Lord, the likelihood that some among us this morning are truly unconverted is probably high. Father, I pray that you would take this mighty gospel, which you promise us, Lord, you promise us in Romans 1.16 that it indeed is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God, you are mighty to save. Lord, would you be gracious to some among us this morning? Lord, would you save sinners? Would they call out to you and say, God, I've been living for myself. I've been living for this world. My treasure is not Jesus Christ. I need Christ. I am under your wrath. I am under your guilt. And I need to be forgiven and set free through the death and resurrection of this Jesus we've heard about. Father, I pray that some among us this morning would call out to you in that way, Lord, from the heart and be forgiven, be mightily saved this morning, God, and that they would come and find us and they would say, God saved me. God has changed me. He's he's done a work. God, would you do that? And in all of us, Lord, conform those of us who belong to Christ into the image of Christ. Help us pursue our sanctification in light of the fact that you have sent Christ for that very thing. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for this time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this covenant meal which remembers our Lord's death and reminds us that he will come again and we will feast with him in glory. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.